Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined by Ben Badler, as always. What's going on tonight, Ben? I'm good, Carlos. You're watching, watching your guy Jordan Waller make his Major League debut. Jordan Waller, number one prospect for the 2021 draft. Yeah, he just uh, made his debut actually right before we hopped on this podcast. He had his first big league at bat, and he grounded out to first base. So I think he's just going to be a bust at this point. The hype was not worth it. Mm. Tough, tough, tough he's reception no, so far. He's no Nolan Chanuel, that's for sure. I mean, let's start with that because we've had we've talked about a lot of promotions. I feel like Jordan Lawler, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like I feel like Jordan Lawler may be even underrated at this point because Jackson Holiday has gotten so much excitement and so much hype, and, and Jordan Lawler hasn't had the most I would say his production throughout his minor league career hasn't been as seemingly easy as Jackson Holiday's has been. And then we've had promotions like Anthony Volpe and Ellie De La Cruz. And we had this big jumble of shortstops that, that maybe makes us forget a little bit about how good Jordan Lawler is. But, I mean, you, you, you're right. He was our number one prospect in the draft a few years ago. He wound up going number six overall on an overslot deal. He did get paid. I think he was the third highest paid player in that draft class, even though he went number six overall. Uh, but at this point, I think he's he's pretty much lived up to the expectations we had of him as a draftee. I'm pretty excited about him as a hitter and as a defender. I think he's going to be a, just a fun, exciting player to watch on a young D-backs team that, that has a number of those players. I really hope they sneak into the playoffs. I don't really know how likely that is at this point, but he is postseason eligible. Uh, so that would be fun. But yeah, what are your thoughts on Jordan Lawler? I, I think I've always been fairly high on him. Yeah, and I think maybe even just how good Corbin Carroll was maybe overshadows a little bit how yeah. how good Lawler has been. I mean, we're talking about him making his major league debut just after he turned 21 years old. I think if you told the D-backs that at the time they drafted him, they'd be pretty pumped about that. Maybe would have gone even higher. <laughs> Other teams known exactly that would be happening um and then i think probably some marcelo you know marcelo meyer was the same draft year right so i think some of that maybe overshadowed him a little bit probably until this year where meyer you know i I think he's battled through some health issues too that i think have masked some of the you know just the true talent level that meyer has and have brought down his overall numbers but you just look at what Lawler has done this year and then obviously the tools to go with it you know plus run plus arm there's power like you said pretty solid defender at shortstop not sounds like maybe he'll play some third base just out of necessity Mm -hmm. in his uh just down the stretch this year and then we'll see about next year but um yeah just a a, I think a very well-rounded player where there's not maybe not like 170 tool like there's not one super super loud tool that he has but everything just the whole sum of the parts makes for a you know potential plus regular i think yeah i think so too and i think you pretty much nailed the summary of him there but i even think with his tools like even if you don't have a 70 on the card for me i think it's above average or plus really across the board i guess maybe you could be a little skeptical about the power if you want it to be. Maybe you, you're a little more skeptical about the pure hit tool there, but 
a really good runner. I think a plus runner. I think he's got a chance to be an above average defender. He's got above average arm strength. So, yeah, there's just no obvious hole in his game. I think he'll impact the game in a lot of different ways. He's almost, I mean, he, he had this reputation coming out of high school as kind of like a Bobby Witt Jr. light in the sense that they're both Texas prep shortstops that really have all the tools and Lawler's were never quite as explosive. Um, but Lawler was always a, a really impressive performer against good competition in high school. And to your point, he's a big leaguer just barely after turning 21 years old. Um, I hope he slides into the shortstop position pretty quickly. I think I think he's a really good defender there. And, you know, Bobby Wood Jr. did some of the same things. There actually are a little interesting to, to parallel those two players. Bobby Wood Jr. spent, I think, half of his rookie year at third base before moving over to shortstop full-time. Uh, but they both have the athleticism to handle that position. And, and even looking back to that 2021 draft class, it was always so difficult to line those top five players up. The five players would be Lawler, Marcelo Meyer, Jack Leiter, Henry Davis, Kamar Rocker. That's kind of the order we had. But throughout that draft cycle, we never really had any sort of consensus on who the number one player was. Um, and for whatever reason, we, we had Lawler one. I think we just had more feedback that, that made sense for us to put him one. Um, some people had Marcelo Meyer. It wasn't, it wasn't uncommon to have one of the pitchers in that number one spot. But yeah, it looks fairly good for us right now. And hopefully he can stay healthy and, and get off to a, a strong career. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's interesting, too, to look back at that 2021 draft with the benefit of hindsight. Because you, yeah, you, you ran down, I mean, yeah, he's, Henry Davis won to the Pirates. Yeah, to be clear, those were our, our top five rankings, not, not the draft order. If any listeners thought I was running down the draft order. but Yeah, so, so think about it. If you were picking number one overall today, like you had this time machine from now you could go back and draft and that's all you could do with the time machine. Um, like with the good obvious, use of it. yeah, good use yeah, of the time yeah. Machine. Just a draft. You have a time machine only for <laughs> cheating at, at the draft. I've had actual like fantasies about having a time machine so I could have like a stellar mock draft. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually been like, man, that'd be amazing. Just imagine if I could do that, <laughs> but you couldn't, but all right. But if you, cha- if you changed your mock draft, you don't think that would affect Somehow, like the, like a butterfly flaps its wings, you change you your know, mock draft, and the outcome I, ends up being different. I didn't go down the whole time travel wormhole enough to even consider the butterfly effect. My thinking was, man, I would love to have a perfect mock draft. I wish I could go forward in time and see what was going to happen. That, that was the extent of my, my thought exercise there. And then I probably had to frantically scramble together my most recent mock. I did, I, I did hear that's actually what Jim Callis did in 2005. Yeah, he, I think so. I think so. We need to find out how he did that because I, I would love to tap into some of that. I wonder, like, I can't imagine that that a team, let's say, let's say that I did have perfect information on who teams preferred and their ranking of players. I, I can't imagine that a team would steer off of that just because it was in. It happened to be in a mock draft, right? You think you think teams would. Like the fact that my mock existed like that would change anything. We're getting in a whole Christopher Nolan time wormhole here, but well, you just you uh, any little action can affect the future <laughs> timeline, and they're going to be reading your mock draft. They might say, Some "Hey, thing. who's th- this guy's getting more buzz higher up? Maybe we should take a closer look at him." I really uh, don't think that. 
I don't think that the decision makers are reacting that strongly to something I'm writing in a mock. Like if they read them, that's one thing. Maybe they're like, oh, we didn't know this or this is interesting or oh, this information is wrong. But I think I, the, I would be surprised if a GM saw something that I wrote in a mock and was like, hmm, I hadn't considered this. I just think the <laughs> ramifications of the, the actions that you take can have different <laughs> impacts on the future timeline that you're sorely underestimating. What is it? A butterfly's wing can uh, create a hurricane on the other side of the world? That's what I don't is. know, but in in this setting, I think it could change the outcome of the draft. Okay, well, but if if you had if you had this time machine, you could go back to 2021, and you had the first pick in the draft. Uh, you know, who would you take with with a condition that you had to take somebody who went in the top ten? Oh, okay, picks right. So Henry Davis went one to the I feel Pirates. Like that makes it fairly easy, but yeah, run run down the names. Okay, Henry Davis one Pirates. Two, Rangers took Jack Leiter. Three, Tigers took Jackson Job. Four, the Red Sox took Marcelo Meyer. Five, the Orioles took Colton Cowser. Six, Jordan Lawler to the D-backs. Seven, Royals take Frank Mazzucato. Eight, Rockies take Benny Montgomery. Nine, Angels take Sam Bachman. Ten, Mets take Kumar Rocker. All right. So am I going first on this? Uh, I'm definitely. Well, just who who would you take? Just who would you take first? I would take Jordan Lawler first. So, you, all right, yeah, I guess that may you thought Lawler was the best of the time, even ahead, still still ahead of Meyer, still ahead of Colton Cowser. Yeah, I think the closest guy I would consider is honestly probably Colton Cowser, but I think that Jordan Lawler has a chance to be a more impactful player, in the fact that he's a shortstop. Like I I think Jordan Lawler and Marcelo Meyer are still close, but I think that. Given Lawler's athleticism and twitchiness, I I think he has a chance to be even more impactful than Marcelo Meyer as well. Uh, although I know there were some people at the time of this draft that, that thought Meyer had more power potential. I think I would probably view them as, as similar power upside players. But yeah, I think Lawler for me, the, the only other two that I would consider really in that grouping would be Kowser and, and Meyer. I think it would be pretty easy to take Lawler over Davis, over Leiter, over Job over Rocker, over Mazzucato, over Bachman. Um, yeah, Benny Montgomery. I, I I think the three that, with hindsight, you would pick are, are Lawler, Meyer, and Kowser in some order, right? Would you go in a different direction than those one of those three? Or, or yeah, those I, I think I think three? those those three are in their own tier. Jackson Job is in our top one hundred right now. Definitely good reports on him, but yeah, I, I really wouldn't put him at, at the level of those other you know position players that we talked about. Henry Davis is in the big leagues, but man, he's the fact that the fact that he doesn't seem like a catcher really hurts the profile for him. If he's going to be a corner outfielder. Yeah. Not catching and not hitting frankly either. It's, it's a tough one. And then Jack lighter, I don't know. Hopefully he can turn things around. Yeah. Uh, hopefully this time off and time on the, what was, I think it's called the development list. Um, now he's back from that. Hopefully that mm. can, turn things around for him but so far it hasn't been good for the most part through his career and then obviously you know down the list Mazzucato Montgomery like solid prospects but not not at this tier Sam Bachman hasn't gone his way and obviously Kumar Rockers had a, a you know range of injuries and other stuff going on so or pretty much just injuries really um that have set him back. So yeah, I think it's, it's gotta be, yeah. One of those, one of those three position players. And, and at this point, I think, I think you gotta take Lawler. 
mm. ahead of Meyer, unless you really think, oh, like Meyer's just been totally damaged this year, or his numbers are really, really dampened by by this injury that maybe he was just playing through. And yeah, yeah, I'd be all, I'm on board for for all three of them, but I think Lawler would be still pretty easily the guy that I would not easily, but a, a safe choice uh, number one. I'm curious if we expand this and, and look throughout the first round how many other players would enter this conversation. And, Some and I'll good kind players. Of just, yeah, there are. I'll just skip through a couple that I think are fascinating here, and you can add or subtract players as as we go down the list. Uh, the first one that jumps out to me, actually, I'll even go back. The, Brady House at 11 to the Nationals. He's had a strong year this year back in our top 100. Andrew Painter, 13 to the Phillies uh, when he was healthy, arguably the top pitching prospect in the game. Sal Frelick, number 15 to the Brewers. Um, scrolling down a little bit more. I don't think this player would be in the conversation, but I just want to mention Jordan Wicks, left-handed pitcher at 21 to the Cubs because he is in the big leagues now, has had three pretty solid starts, even if there are some, maybe some swing and miss questions still. Uh, and then uh, actually a pretty strong number of exciting names in the 20s, um, starting with Colson Montgomery, 20, 22 to the White Sox, Gavin Williams, 23 to the Guardians. What about Matt McLean with the Reds? Oh yeah, I, can, I entirely skipped over McLean. Yes, seventeen to the Reds. Like I, I don't think you would you wouldn't take him number one overall. Obviously, like at the time mm-hmm. of the draft, but if you look at what he has done so far, I mean, he's been the most productive yeah. player and so far in the of, major leagues. Speaking of players who maybe get underrated, just given the the other things going on around them, I think Matt McLean has been one of the best rookies in baseball this year. And because it's such a strong field, you don't really hear him talked about all that often. It's mostly Corbin Carroll, Gunnar Henderson. Or just on his own team. Yeah, exactly. Ellie Ellie Cruz. Cruz. Like he's, Ellie is much more exciting and loud and, and obviously has star potential. But McLean has just been super solid. I'm trying to pull up his numbers right now, but that's a great one that I skipped over. Um, I'll kind of keep going down the list. He's, he, he's even underrated right now. You skip right over him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, he is. Um, let's see. Beyond that, uh, Jackson Merrill, number 27 mm. to the Padres. Carson Williams, number 28 to the Rays. And I think I'll kind of cap it there. Wh- which one of those well, players or how many of those players would you consider number one or in that, like, let's say the top tier for making the top tier Lawler, Meyer? and Colton Kowser in hindsight. Man, that's a good one. Uh, Gavin Williams has, has got to be pretty high up that list. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, Matt McClain, like you said, what he's doing right now <laughs> as an everyday shortstop, I mean, he's he's basically a, a 60 right now. Mm. I mean, I'm not sure if he's going to keep repeating that every year consistently, but that's that's impressive. Um, if Painter was healthy to be... A, He'd be in that conversation, but he's not. I, I have a lot more concern with just yeah. health and risk. We're there. both we're both very skittish on pitchers too. I feel like in general, so just the confidence of the hitters probably lean us towards that group. Yeah, I mean, there's some good players after that too. Even like Tyler Black, 33rd overall is in our top 100. Later on, mm-hmm. you got James Wood, Zach Geloff, Andrew Abbott. Um, Kyle Manzardo, Robert Gasser, Connor Norby, it's all second round picks. Like 
you you wouldn't have taken well actually you might have taken james wood you were super high on him <laughs> at the time you wouldn't have taken him obviously with like a i might have uh, taken 10. james wood top 20 but i don't think i would have taken him top 10 even yeah. even being so high on him but he'd at least be in that conversation now for sure yeah and I'm actually, it's funny, I'm looking at Matt McLean's scouting report right now. I just wanted to see what I put on his power at the time because he has hit 16 home runs and 23 doubles in just 89 games this year. And I'm pretty sure that I put in his report less than even that 16 number. We'll yeah, never the, hit more than 15. <laughs> the line I wrote was, though he hit for power in college, his fringe average raw power will likely translate more to doubles with a wood bat and limit him to 10 to 15 home runs per season. Um, yeah, the, the only question about his offensive game at the time was the impact and the power. I think he was pretty, pretty well regarded as above average or, or even plus hitter, but he's already exceeded the expectations. I think we had, and I had for, for just impact ability. So yeah. what a draft by the Padres though. Their first three picks were Jackson Merrill, James Wood, and Robert Gasser, all of whom are in our, in our top 100 right yeah. now with Wood and Merrill stuffed up. Way, Very, way high. This is what happens when you draft uh, high school players with tools and athleticism. It's more fun that way. You can you can miss terribly, but you can also hit really exciting. I mean, same thing with the White Sox. They just went super college heavy after taking Colson Montgomery and, and Noah Schultz. I wish they would keep taking high school players because both of those look look like pretty good picks. Yeah, if you're if you're good at evaluating, that helps too. <laughs> That's absolutely true. <laughs> I think Carson Williams is fascinating as well. I'm not sure what you think about Carson Williams, but I'm really intrigued with him. And the more I've, I've watched him, he's a really fun player. Where are you at on the, like, not necessarily great pure hitter, but power, flashy defender, cannon arm. He's having a pretty good year, uh, and I love just watching him play. How far outside of this, this tier of prospects we're talking about is Carson Williams for you? I think he's not too far off i mean yeah he's you know still in in you know mostly played in high a this year i, I do think yeah the, the strikeouts is a big difference but there's so many other things that he does well on the field that i i wouldn't put him in that top top tier group of players that we were just talking about but he's i don't think he's too far behind them either yeah, I think the the strikeout rate is even a little more concerning than I was expecting. It's it's always been twenty seven percent or higher throughout his minor league career, and in over a hundred games, hundred one games at high A, it was thirty one point six percent. So, I'm not sure how much he'll be able to drop that or manage that as he progresses. Uh, he just has four games of the upper levels of the minors, so that'll be something to watch. But man, he's really exciting. I, I guess if he keeps walking at the ten percent rate or north of that, that you don't have to have a high average to be at least a, a solid offensive contributor, especially if you're playing the sort of shortstop defense that he's going to provide. Yeah. Is his With... path to shortstop pretty clear for the Rays now? I know they like <laughs> to move guys around, but... I think the Rays situation shortstop is uh, anything but clear well, right now. They're, I mean, outside of the Wander situation, do they have any other obvious players, like more long-term, that, that are going to lock down that position or, or have the ability to? Because... I imagine you, you'll lose quite a bit of, of overall value if you're not playing Carson at, at shortstop. That, that's where a lot of his, his value will come from. Well, I guess depending on how you classify Junior Caminero, but I don't I think he's a shortstop. shortstop. over Carson Williams especially. Well, just uh, he's, you know, he's further along right now. He's going to get to the big leagues before Carson Williams. But mm -hmm. at the same time, 
like I'd have a, you know, there were, there were people who thought Wander Franco, I guess, was going to be more of a second baseman than a shortstop. And he ended up playing shortstop, but like, but even the physicality Franco is now like his, his body is, yeah, I got to think he's, he's going to play third base long-term and yeah, yeah, you know, could be a perennial all-star third baseman. He's just an absolute monster. I think he has a case I was gonna say he has a case to be the number two prospect in baseball. Mm. If you wanted to go really wild, you could argue him even number one. I mean, he he, he impacts the ball like there, there's nobody who has the combination of power, raw power with you know the hitting ability yeah. that he has in the minor leagues. Um, and there there are very few players, even just in the big leagues, who have the kind of raw power that junior Caminero has and for him mm-hmm. to be doing what he's doing this year at what I think he's still 20 years old in, um, he in double a turned 20 recently. Mid- right. Am I wrong on that one? Uh, yeah, I don't have his age right in front yeah, of me, he, but he, he's 20, uh, and 64 days. So he, he turned 20 in July. Um, yeah. So. I mean, but he's, he looks like an absolute monster, but I, I don't think he's going to be, I think he's probably their third baseman mm-hmm. of the future. Yeah, I mean, even a majority of his games already are, are coming at third base in the minors, so I, I'm with you on that one. Um, I mean, we can. I, I kind of want to touch on the Rays just in general for a second here. Are you <laughs> – I feel like there are a couple clubs that you could say this about every single year. Are you surprised with how good they are considering they lost Jeffrey Springs early in the year who, who looked like one of the best pitchers in the game? They lost Shane McClanahan. Obviously, Wander Franco is not playing for them right now. And they're solidly a top three, top five team in baseball. Like <laughs> they just constantly are putting out great teams. It, it seems like they're able to just add players from other organizations, make those players better, and just consistently win in a strong division. Maybe, yeah. If they were all wearing a different uniform and it, you know, they changed the team name, maybe I'd be surprised. But just the fact, like you kind of alluded to, that it, it is the Rays and they seem to do this every year uh not not so much um i think i expected them to be um you know in in the playoffs when the season started but yeah given all of the issues that they've had keeping players on yeah. the field that's it's incredible <laughs> the way yeah. they've been able to keep keep it going no it really is and i mean i'm honestly at this point hoping that they can get a World Series championship at some point because you just know that if, if a team like this doesn't ever actually win the whole thing, they're going to be underrated in in hindsight. Like like history won't remember them being as good as they were just because they never had the trophy to kind of cap it off. They only have a couple first place finishes in this span of being really good. But man, they they just so consistently put out a strong team. It's it's just impressive to me. And I was thinking about it today when just looking at some of the postseason stuff and just seeing the thinking about the amount of significant injuries they've had and significant player subtractions they've had this year. It, it's just kind of remarkable. I mean, other, other clubs would love to be the race, the, uh, yeah. the big market race. <laughs> with, uh, with, with Jordan Waller, were you surprised that he was called up? I mean, he only had 16 games in triple a, mm. I believe like we've talked about everybody from the draft is moving <laughs> fast now. Obviously, this is not his draft class, and this is a, a bigger jump going 
to the big leagues, but were you surprised at all that he's coming up? Do you think he's ready or do you think he might struggle? Obviously his first at bat wasn't very good. You said, yeah, like I said, probably a bust <laughs> after that ground out, like opposite field, weak ground out really didn't look the part. No, uh, I don't know. It, it seems like a number of teams don't find triple a as necessary. Like if they have a lot of experience at double a and I mean, he had 89 games. I'm not sure how many games you you really need for a player before you're comfortable pushing him up if, if anything like if you think that he's gonna join the team and be impactful i feel like he should have come up even sooner just to try and help keep the d-backs in the hunt maybe that would be short-sighted for his development to to try and sneak some wins for your big league club but it doesn't shock me that that he's promoted it seems like a, a reasonable timeline for for a prospect that we view as one of the best in baseball it's it's not any more aggressive than some other promotions we've seen in recent years like michael harris being promoted for the braves is pretty significantly more aggressive than this one in my mind although i say that now i want to pull up and see how many games of upper level baseball he had but were you surprised with it i i wasn't as in tune with like what the d-backs needed their lineup like how that was positioned to say oh like this obviously makes sense or obviously doesn't but in terms of like what Lawler himself has done it I I think it's fair yeah I think that looking at their big league roster I can understand it more that third base has been a hole in their lineup their third baseman this year collectively hitting 239 305 353 this season and Mm -hmm. shortstop hasn't been much better um, and a lot of that was Nick Ahmed but Lawler played third base right before the Diamondbacks called him up. Um, and it sounds like just from the reporting elsewhere that he might, uh, that Lawler might see more time at third base. Yeah. Uh, I think you know, he's, I think tonight he's playing shortstop, but that might just be a comfort thing. With are they facing, are they facing a lefty tonight? Um, I'll pull it back up. I, yeah. I but, this. but her, I mean, Geraldo Perdomo is mostly facing righties. So I could see mm-hmm. him getting yeah. playing time too at shortstop when they're facing a lefty. We'll see. But, um, you know, like how is he going to hit over three weeks or whatever the 20 or so games left in the season? You know, I don't know. It's just too short of a sample window to, to say for that time of performance the, but the starter tonight for the cubs is, is javier Assad, who's a right-handed pitcher so okay um but you know look like i, I don't think I, I don't think what lawler is going to do is going to be much worse than the 239 305 <laughs> 353 <laughs> that they've been getting uh, out of their third baseman so it might be it's possible but hmm. with lawler there's there's at least the upside for something better uh in a, in a time that really matters for the d-back so i can understand the rationale for calling him up now and i'm glad the rules are what they are now where teams are being more uh you know more amenable to just promoting their best players now mm-hmm. you're talking about the prospect promotion incentive that that helps teams do that that you're talking about yeah yeah since they've mm-hmm. changed since they've changed the rules it just makes more sense to be you know, we've just seen teams be a little bit more aggressive with uh, with promoting their yeah, players, both, both at the end of the good. season and, and to start the year, too. Yeah, Matt Eddy had a good piece recently on the site. If you guys want to check out, initially I was asked if, if Lawler was eligible for the postseason, and I think Matt did a pretty good job really clearly laying out the postseason eligibility rules and kind of the history behind them. So that was interesting to me. I'm not like the sharpest when it comes to MLB transaction rules. I think they're 
pretty convoluted and, and complicated at times, but, but Matt is really sharp with that stuff. So check that out if you guys uh, are interested or if you're a D-backs fan and, and you're wondering how that worked. Um, but I, just to circle back on Michael Harris, um, how many games he played at, at high or the upper levels of the minors, he only had 43 games at double-A in 2022 before he was promoted to the majors in his age 21 season. Um, so in terms of age, uh, maybe you could argue that Lawler is a little bit more aggressive. He had 199 games under his belt in the minors. Uh, Michael Harris had 199 games in the minors. Jordan Lawler had 207. So I think it's pretty comparable um, and not out of the question. And obviously, Michael Harris had a, a pretty sensational rookie year in 2022 on a pro rate basis, one of the best since like Mike Trout, which is exceptionally loud. And he's had a pretty solid more than pretty solid sophomore campaign too. So no, I don't think it's out of the question. Do you think there's any case to Lawler being called up earlier since the D-backs are kind of on the fringe hunt of the playoffs? And I think they have, Fangraphs has them as like a 20% chance to get into the playoffs at this point. It seems like they're on the outside looking in, but obviously things can change pretty quickly. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, maybe, maybe. I mean, it still would have been very aggressive, I yeah. think, but... It's but, a 30% I mean, you per- chance for them to make the playoffs as of today, yeah. FYI. And I think, I feel like a few weeks ago they might have been closer, or that might that might just be my, like, wishful thinking. Yeah, like, sort of late August they went on a little surge, and they had a 61% chance to make the playoffs on August 25th. I'll pull up their, their schedule to see kind of what they've done since August 25th. August 25th to now, but yeah, I, I almost wonder if, if they should have been more aggressive with him if they, if they did have the lineup need that you're talking about. Yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe. Who knows? I might have just stumbled into something here. Yeah, I'm pulling it up right now. So from August 25th to September 6th, they went uh, five and seven so i mean just under 500 ball maybe the angels a few more games the angels would have had them up (laughs) yeah they would have had them up like a year and a half ago probably (laughs) did you know that so so just looking at some batted ball that is i I guess nolan shanuel will be a just a weekly bit on the podcast but have you seen some of the comparables for his minor league batted ball data Including like the so this is doing pro- major leagues too. I'm sure. I don't have that folded into this data that I had seen, um, but I, I think you could. But it's it, basically the same. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine it's changed too much. But yeah, the the players that he comes up with are the Enrique Bradfield and the Chandler Simpsons of the world. It's a bunch of small, skinny, fast middle infield, up the middle center field types. And like, like JJ has already written about this. We've talked about this, but man, it's, it's almost shocking to see that exit velocity data. And I'm just like very skeptical about what that offensive profile is going to turn into, even if him having a 30 or 43% on base percentage this soon in his major league career is really impressive. I just, it's, it's hard to see that sort of approach having value. If you're a first baseman, tell me that I'm wrong. It's very, it's just very unusual because you look at him and he's six four, what two twenty, two thirty. I mean, yeah. this is not a little, this is not Nick Madrigal, mm-hmm. but he kind of hits the ball 
<laughs> like Nick Madrigal, right? I mean, it's, and I talked to it's, scouts who saw him in BP, and they thought the raw power was solid. Like no one said it was huge plus raw power, but but no one also said it was below average raw power. So I. I really think that there's a chance that it's more approach oriented and he just wants to make contact. He wants to hit the ball the other way. Like I think he could sacrifice a little bit of contact for more power. And I think that's probably what he, he will need to do in the coming years. But yeah, I, I, I think so to find a, just a better balance between the two, especially as a first baseman, right? He doesn't have the defensive mm-hmm positional value or the defensive skill of those other players we were talking about because but at the same time like 70 plate appearances uh through tonight or, or through today uh one extra base hit <laughs> in the major leagues but at the same time he has a 429 on base percentage for a guy who was playing for florida atlantic a few yeah. months ago so like it's there's there's it's just such an extreme skill set where he has outstanding bat control and an outstanding eye for the strike zone he doesn't chase he makes a ton of contact he can really manipulate the barrel but if you're a first baseman you you just you can't have the kind of game power that he's he's showing right now but he's also 21 years old so it's not like he's uh (laughs) this is you know or you know, yeah, it's, it's not like he's what what you see is what you get with him either. Absolutely, and and I think it also highlights just how difficult it could be when you're analyzing batted ball data and, and exit velocities in college with metal compared to wood and how that translates. Because Shanuel was like a data darling in terms of contact, power, and chase rates, like all three of those areas that are kind of the the holy trinity of of offensive production. In, it out exceptionally well in college with metal with metal right in the yes. cape in the cape not as much in the cape not so much so we're starting to gather some data and i think it's going to be really interesting to look at like what is the average drop off for college hitters with their their college metal ev data to wood bat like how much of a drop off should you expect and are there certain like player profile types or hitting approaches that that suffer more or less you would think a guy like shanuel would translate better to wood because he has such such good barrel manipulation and such great contact skills uh, but it doesn't seem to be the case um and i think just looking into that now that we have more of that college data available is going to be really cool to see i'm sure teams have done these studies just so they can kind of get like brace themselves for for what the batter ball data might translate to but for me, it's interesting because I don't have any clear idea of like how much drop off you should expect for the average player, and and what are the extremes, and what are the outliers, and really just power in general is so hard to figure out. I think power is hard to to scout. It seems like there are a lot of players that always just hit for more power than you expect. We're talking about Matt McLean, and then you add in metal bats in college, you add in the the super hot home run environment we had in college baseball this past year, like crazy home run totals. I don't envy the scouts that have to put these these power grades, future power grades down in their scouting reports. But yeah, then you have you have somebody like Matt Shaw with the Cubs, their first round pick this year, who's just going out and murdering the ball right now. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> doing he even it had some double A. There was some skepticism with his power numbers too, because Maryland is a pretty homer friendly park, and there were some people that are like, yeah, he 
he's strong, he hits the ball hard, but what's it going to be like with wood and in bigger parks or more neutral environments? But yeah, he's been, he's been pretty tremendous. Yeah. And, and I think some of that with like Jordan Lawler is not somebody who has like gigantic raw power by any means. Um, but if you look at his ability just to naturally get the ball airborne, the just there's there's some natural loft in his swing that I think leads is going to lead to better home run numbers than you know maybe just the the raw power might otherwise suggest. Yeah, do you think it's harder to get players to lift the ball at an angle that you want, or just to hit the ball harder in general? Do you think that one is more tricky to teach, or maybe riskier to try and teach? Mm, kind of a like Garrett Mitchell. Yeah. Garrett Mitchell question. Um, it seems like, I mean, I don't know, actually. I'm kind of thinking this through in my head. I think maybe it's easy to overstate how easy a swing change can be because you kind of hit how you hit. I think you've talked about this before on the podcast. So I would guess it's easier to, to train either bat speed or add strength to increase just power rather than like a swing change designed to change batted ball angles. But I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of curious what, what teams think, like what player development folks think is more challenging to fix. Yeah, I would agree that the swing change is not an easy fix by any means. And mm. it's not just like, oh, this guy hits the ball on the ground a lot. So we just have to teach him to hit the ball <laughs> in the air and change the swing that he's probably had for, you know, at least 10, 15, maybe years of his mm. life. Um, so I, I think changing those kind of very f- deeply ingrained motor patterns is mm. not easy to do, but is, is doable we've seen. So it, it maybe depends on how, how much of a change you're talking about with the swing. And it probably just depends on the individual yeah, hitter they, too. Yep. And it, and it, the same going probably for increasing power to a certain extent. Like if, you know, you have a guy who has a, a lot of bat speed, but is just physically weak right now. All right, I, I you generally will have confidence that he can increase his strength, and you'll start to see the ball fly off the bat more. Especially if we're talking about a a younger player. Whereas with Nolan Shanuel, like, yeah, I mean, I think there's some more room for him to get stronger. Like, I don't think he's physically maxed out at 21 years old, but it's not a ton of physical projection left so like (laughs) i I don't know that a lot is going to come from powers is necessarily going to come from more strength gains i think it's probably more of an approach uh, adjustment that you're talking about and how much that's going to translate to more power yeah Uh, I, i don't know i wonder how many like how much of the the hitting tendencies that you mentioned have to do with your environment growing up and playing because Earlier today, I was podcasting with Peter, and we were just talking about uh, the, the California style of game, kind of the West Coast style. Peter's a fan of it. I'm, I'm less so a fan of it. But I wonder how much, like, just being told at a young age that, like, hitting the ball the other way, making contact, utilizing your speed, sort of ingrains some of those tendencies that maybe shape your swing. Because I always think about that with Garrett Mitchell. He was a southern california high school prospect played for orange lutheran they do a lot of small ball there they like to hit all fields then he went to ucla same deal really value small ball moving runners over hitting the ball on the ground using his speed like and it does seem like there are other areas of the country or even other other countries in general that just don't have that 
they don't prioritize those small ball aspects as much these days, like elevate and celebrate is much more common in other areas of the country. And I just wonder if you grow up with one or two, like if you grow up with those, how much does that actually like determine the style of hitter that you are and, and kind of lock in some of those tendencies that are hard to change. That's it's super fascinating to me. Jaron Duran, when he was in school yeah, out great, on the West coast, call. was the same way. Um, I think the baseball culture that you grow up in has a significant impact on, um, on, mm-hmm. on the types of players that come out of certain uh, countries or, or regions. I mean, you know, there, there's definitely a certain style of baseball yeah. in Japan uh, that's different that you see both, both from the style of hitting and the style of uh, pitching and pitching mechanics. Yeah. Um, I would say the same is true in uh you know, like the Dominican Republic has its own baseball culture, even like different regions of the country produce like different types of players. I would say like, it's, you know, it's more of a generalization. There's all sorts of different players that can come mm-hmm. from all sorts of different parts of uh, the country and in the world, but there's definitely an, an influence that the uh, baseball culture of a region can have on, on the players there. Yeah, absolutely. I got a chance to see Luis arise in a big league game at, at the Nationals Park recently, and just seeing him hit in person was kind of fun because he's one of these guys who almost, I think at this point, he might exemplify this sort of old school approach that, that a lot of people love and just like hitting the ball where it's pitched, going the other way, slapping singles through the opposite field, sharp singles up the middle. And I think in back-to-back years now, he's led the league in hitting and looking like he's having one of the best offensive seasons of his career so far so I, I definitely don't think you need to subscribe to one hitting philosophy or, or another but I do think it's interesting thinking about like changing habits when you need to and how difficult that could be and how much of that is just tied to your your baseball background I think that makes baseball more interesting we've talked about a lot the fact that there are so many styles of play and uh and just ways to go about the game makes it more fun more interesting to talk about you know what drives me nuts is when like not even like old school, but like just like cranky baseball. I mean, baseball people necessarily, but just cranky, yeah, cranky people will talk cool. about how uh, like analytics would hate Lu- Luis Arias because he's this <laughs> like, like you said, he's this kind of like throwback player um, who doesn't necessarily hit the ball hard, but just has phenomenal back control, plate coverage, mm-hmm. puts the ball in play. And it's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Like Luis Arias is like one of the best, clearly one of the best players in baseball. He's like a five war player, like a 400 on base guy. Like, yeah, are, I mean, are, all of those, also about? almost all of those are just straw man arguments and people yelling at the clouds. But yeah, it's, it's insane. I mean, Ops Plus loves him. Like you said, war, he's a five war player. I mean, his baseball savant page looks pretty red to me. And I think that counts as analytics. So. His sweet spot percentage is the 99th percentile. Would you believe that? Same thing was his whiff, with his whiff rate and strikeout rate. Yeah, 99. It must be rounding down, too, feels like. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the whiff rate and the, and the K percentage are both 100th percentile, um, which is unsurprising. Barrel hard hit percentage down near the bottom, 5, 5th yeah. percentile and under. But, yeah, I, I think it's cool that we can, despite what you might see on Twitter, you can have examples of players who succeed offensively in different styles. And that's great. 
Not a lot of sub six figure signing bonus hitters from uh, from Latin America who go on to become really good big leaguers too. No. He's definitely broken that mold. Did you see? Speaking of that, did you see Ronald Acuna's like 121 mile per hour home run the other day? Did I? Yeah. Did I? Did you see that? I, I have an internet connection, and I don't think you could have missed it if you. <laughs> I was a little late on that actually. I, I I was just watching it today, but man, if you want exit velocity, there's your guy. Like I think third hardest hit home run in Statcast history, and sixth hardest hit ball period in Statcast his, Statcast history. Uh, that was fun to see. Yeah, Luis Angel Acuna hit uh, two home runs, little bro for mm. for the Mets. What night. do you think about the What do you think about the little brother theory, or, or the yeah the little brother theory? Well, I don't I don't think the little that the little brother ends up being better. Mm-hmm. I don't think that one's going to happen here. But <laughs> I mean the bar the bar is a little bit high on that one. Yeah, but I wasn't there's... necessarily talking about it as him being better, but in terms of like in terms of younger brothers just being exposed to the game faster than the elder brother. I think, I think there's a lot of interest in that. Maybe we could talk about the holidays. If you don't think, uh, if you don't think Luis on Acuna has a chance, maybe it's more interesting to think about Ethan versus Jackson holiday. That's going to yeah, be the them, hot, I mean, hot duo uh, moving forward. The Uptons. Yeah. I mean, if you have an older brother, like you're just going to be hanging around your brother playing with him, playing against older competition, um, you know, going to the park mm. with him, um, you're you're going to be able to learn from him, pick his brain. I mean, obviously Jackson has somebody in his family too who he can uh, learn from, and uh, you know it's very very evident there um, that uh, just given both both of their baseball IQs are extremely extremely high. But uh, but yeah, I mean I think there's something to that, but uh, obviously not in every case the. <laughs> Uh, but I mean that that whole family too, because that whole f- that family is not just um, Ronald and and Luis Angel. I mean, they yeah, have, there's a lot of extended relatives that are just yeah, sports. like cousins is like Alcides Escobar, Kelvin Escobar. Um, basically, everybody in that family by the time they're 16 has like a plus arm. Um, it's like there's like a pitcher with the. I want to say the twins whose name I'm blanking on right now. He can throw in the mid nineties, the, uh, who's, who's a cousin, the, um, they have another little brother coming up. Um, they've got, um, there was like a pitcher who was came up with a side with the Mariners originally Jose Vicente mm-hmm. Campos. I think he ended up with the Yankees was, you know, a really good pitching prospect had, had some injuries, but uh, yeah, one of the it's one of the biggest baseball families. I think just gets under under noticed yeah. given the the volume of, of pro and big league players and the quality that mm. that are in there. Absolutely. Uh, you want to talk about some pitching next? Uh, what what did you think about the Pirates shutting down? Paul Skeens after throwing 6.2 innings in his pro debut. Surprising. I think everything about that is surprising. Yes, extremely weird. Um, So (laughs) 
Paul Skeens threw 122 innings with LSU, significantly his most uh, innings in a single season as an amateur. Obviously, this was his first year in college where he wasn't doing the two-way thing, so maybe you factor that into the workload and just the general toll on his body. Maybe you can make a case that it wasn't any more um, burdensome for him compared to Air Force when he was hitting and pitching and doing the military academy thing. I think that is a sensible argument, but... You do. He is shut down after the season. He ramps back up for pro ball. He throws five starts, very brief starts each. In one in rookie ball, two in low A, then two in double A, and then September fifth, I guess, was the date. Um, the Pirates basically said he checked all of his boxes, and they're going to shut him down. Um, I think it's very weird, and I think maybe what's even weirder is the fact that the Pirates are already working with Paul Skeens on pitch design and tinkering with the shape of his breaking ball and emphasizing a two-seamer. So a lo- all of this is super weird. I'm curious what you think about it. And I just think it's crazy that the Pirates drafted Paul Skeens number one overall and immediately started tinkering with his pitch mix. Like, I feel like you drafted this guy number one overall for a reason. Why? Why do you feel the need to immediately start tinkering because I haven't seen his data firsthand, his pitch data in pro ball, but Jeff put eyes on it and pretty much immediately said the slider doesn't look as good right now. And the pirates said that they were working with pitch design and tinkering with the shape of his breaking ball. What was wrong with the shape of his breaking ball? It was like the shape of his breaking ball this spring was one of the reasons why he took such a massive step forward. I just don't understand that. Are we sure? Are we sure they were trying to, change it or were they seeing the same thing that maybe he just was coming back and his slider wasn't as good potentially and they I, were i i think it but i i thought it was just kind of a throwaway kind of generic quote from okay. the general manager when i heard that like i think he was asked you know what he was working on so he just mentioned some of the basic stuff that every pitcher yeah. is probably working through well in their maybe, I, maybe i took the doom the doom avenue there because i just connected his his slider shape has been a little bit worse than college and then you see um charrington talking about how Skeens worked on pitch design and i guess maybe they saw it was bad it, i read it as that that was a focus of him ramping up and throwing in pro ball in addition to experiencing a pro routine and the schedule which which they cited as boxes they wanted paul Skeens to check off like I also don't like you ramped him up for six innings because you wanted him to get used to minor league travel. I, I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. Well, I mean, on the on the pitch design stuff, like I, I think that's just like a Throw generic comment. Well, generic I'm, I'm comment that he's making. Like the pitch design is worse, and I'm just like baffled that a team would mess with that at all. Yeah, I don't think he's like he didn't say we're changing Paul Skeens' slider. We're doing an overhaul of that pitch. I think he just mentioned pitch design well, the as fact something. That the writer specifically mentioned the shape of his breaking ball and emphasizing a two seamer just threw up massive red flags for me. I don't know. He could say like, "Oh, like we're working on like mechanics." That's the, like it could just be anything. It could but, just. But they didn't say mechanics. They said the shape of his breaking ball specifically. I'm uh, hung up on it. I know Ben. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think there's too much to take away from that. I, I mean, in, in I general, don't want the pirates messing with Paul Skeens this quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was like the Rays. Sure. Sure, and I mean, in general, there are teams that take a very 
hands-off approach with their new draftees, right? At least at least until a certain period of time has passed let, because... Let them fail first if you want to change them. It's the yeah. same thing with some colleges you hear about getting really hands-on with their hitters. Like, I just feel like... Basically, I, I think I'm more... I was more concerned about the pitch design and tinkering aspect of this than, than ramping him up for just six innings in general. But maybe you feel differently. But yeah, it just it blows my mind when some of these teams... I think some teams really try and get too cute and, and almost outsmart themselves. Like, again, there's a reason you took this guy number one. And maybe I could just be reading more into this quote than I, I should be. But, man, it drives me crazy. Yeah, I, I didn't really think there was anything there. Um, I do think, yeah, like to your point about teams being more hands-off, I, I, teams generally seem to try to do that with the idea being that, like, hey, we drafted this guy. Our scouts liked something about him or – yeah obviously a lot of things in the case yeah, <laughs> a player like the Paul guy that you just gave a record setting bonus to drafted number one in a historic class one of the best pitching prospects you've seen in a decade like of all the guys to not t- tinker with it's him he just right. had a, he just had a big league pitching coach last year at LSU right yeah. <laughs> like come um, on he, he just turned him into the best pitching like he took a massive step forward because of the changes he made at LSU what are, what are we changing about him I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna stop ranting on this I'll let you go well, again, I, I'm not sure that they actually changed anything, but the idea, like you on the development player development staff, like you're just getting to know him now. So don't change anything about this new draft pick of ours until you've seen him more extensively. Like, yeah, maybe there's something about, you know, just take any draft pick, something about his swing or his pitching mechanics that looks wrong to you. But maybe the more you watch him, the more you realize, okay, it doesn't, look optimal but um but it might work for him or or you just spend time getting to know the player talking to him about um you know why he does a certain thing in an unorthodox way on the mound and then you realize oh all right well that's that's just how his body moves let's not change something that's going to be even more disruptive and have a, a negative impact on him or uh, or, or you just spend the time talking to him and realize, oh no, like the player actually doesn't have a reason for why he moves that way, or he doesn't even realize that he's doing it, and it's a, a swing and efficiency or something like that. You that you can uh, address it, and, and the player will be better off, but not until you've spent a, a sufficient period of time getting to mm-hmm. know the player and, and understand him more. Yeah, agreed with all that. It's, and uh, what do you think about him? being activated and just throwing six innings like yeah so that i evaluate that that i think more passionate about that probably relative to my passion for the 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 pitch tinkering that we might not know even happened i guess yeah i think pitch design is a a good marketing term more than (laughs) more than anything but i i think the bigger question really is like what was the original plan Mm. that the pirates had for skeins and did they shut him down for some other reason? Because Skeens, he pitched for LSU. They won the national championship. They wrote him pretty hard, right? I mean, like we talked about yeah. the debate of whether they overused him on the podcast before. Yep. And I think we both agree there wasn't anything egregious, but no. His, but he was, he, the big season's... thing for him was he, he took the ball every week and took the ball deep into games every week. Yeah, it started. His season started in February. They went all the way to the championship at the end of June. Like you said, he threw 122 innings, and that that last month of June, he had three starts 
where he threw at least 120 pitches. Now yeah, he, he was getting it, ready to to come into the the final as well on on short rest out of the bullpen too. So he he was getting ready to, to pitch even more. <laughs> yeah, luckily that one wasn't. Close. Yeah, thank God that didn't happen. <laughs> um, but sorry. Right, so like you said, he didn't pitch in July. So you're you're telling me the Pirates' plan was then to ramp him back up, have him make five extremely brief starts, and throw six and two thirds innings before shutting him down, and that and shutting him down after it was announced that his last start was supposed to be this week against Dylan Cruz, which was the big big headline, right? Yeah, which like they would have got like one at bat against each other, but like <laughs> yeah, but I mean that that's what would be marketed for that game if if you announce this as his last game and it's against Dylan Cruz, the other wonderkind of the LSU championship team, and now they're facing off. Like sure, I mean he was crazy with that, but yeah, I agree. He, he like, was supposed to start, and then at the very late they decided no. So I, I don't know what what exactly is going on. But even but if think... that was supposed to be his last start from day one, say, okay, he throws two more innings. I I don't get the whole shutdown ramp up for that at all. I I would have preferred him to just be shut down entirely. Right. I, I think we can agree at 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 the least it's a bit puzzling and something to monitor to me because teams typically don't operate this way, right? Like just look at the other college yeah, the pitchers. Other, the other two teams that seem to be most aggressive with their twenty three arms are the Braves and the Marlins. Uh, they have they both have a couple of pitchers. Hurston Waldrop, obviously the Braves' first rounder, he's thrown 18 innings. Um, Lucas Braun, a six rounder for the Braves, who's actually been really good. He leads all 2023 draftees with 21.1 innings. The Marlins have thrown Xavier Meacham 17.2 innings. Um, and, and I might have spoken kind of turn about the Marlins. I, I guess he's the only one. I guess it would be Braves. Braves Nationals both have a handful of pitchers who have thrown 15 plus 13 plus innings. Um, so yeah, those are, those are the most aggressive in terms of innings so far. Lucas right. Braun, Chris Clark with the angels, Alec Baker with the D backs. I could go on, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not a ton of teams who are throwing pitchers for any significant amount of time. And there are a lot of teams that just don't activate their players much at all with this draft calendar with with college look at the other college pitchers who were drafted high this year right Rhett Lauder with the Reds not pitching Chase Dolander with the Rockies not pitching mm. Ty Floyd with the Reds 38th overall pick An- yeah. another LSU arm the not only, pitching. the only first round arms out of college who have thrown are Hurston Waldrop and Paul Skeens Right. I mean, he, like you can keep going like Sean Sullivan, who was the Rockies second round pick out of Wake Forest. He he's made three appearances and thrown four innings, mm-hmm. but he also only threw, you know, 69 and two thirds at Wake this spring. Yeah. Uh, Brandon Sprout, Mets second round pick out of Florida, not pitching. Like you could just keep going down the list with the, the one big exception that you mentioned would be Hurston Waldrip, the Braves first round pick. And he threw 101 innings at florida he's yeah, made he five starts good. in pro ball two of them you know in double a uh but he's all again like he's also thrown 18 innings to after they gotten him ramped back up not six and two thirds like skeins and he's still going like you know the braves and pirates are in very different situations right now where 
you know, I'm not saying I expect Hurston Waldrip to be pitching in the big leagues this but year, I, but but I wouldn't be shocked to be honest, given the way it, they've operated. Right. I mean, he he has a quick tangent. Like Hurston Waldrip has a perfect repertoire to come out of the bullpen in the postseason if you wanted to, or or late down the stretch if you need some arms. Like I, I don't think that would be crazy, although I wouldn't bet on it. Right. So we can look too at, at what the Pirates have done with their other high college draft picks this year. Right. They took it took. Carson Reed from uh, West Virginia in the fourth round and Patrick Riley from Vanderbilt in the fifth. All right. Like Reed has made four appearances for seven innings in the FCL, but he was a college reliever through 38 innings this spring. Riley has eight relief appearances for nine and a third innings in low a, but he also, I mean, he mostly pitched out of the bullpen at -hmm. Vanderbilt this spring and he, he struggled there. So he only threw 48 in the third innings during the collegiate season. So, all right, now you can look back at their 2022 draft, right? They took Thomas Harrington out of Campbell. Shout out Southern Lee high school alum. I, I waited for you. <laughs> yeah. I, you heard me pause, <laughs> right? Like supplemental first round 36th overall pick through 92 and two thirds in college did not pitch that summer after signing, you know, their next pick Hunter Barco, like he had TJ that spring at Florida. That's, that's a different situation. Mm-hmm. And, and their 2021 drafts. All right. All of all their top pitchers that they drafted that year were high school arms. And then obviously 2020 is irrelevant for this conversation because the, the, there was no minor league season that year. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if we just look at the bigger picture, I would say that, Either the Pirates had a very unusual development plan in place for Skeens that seems just to be completely out of line with both how they and the entire industry almost seems to would, would typically handle their collegiate early round picks, uh, particularly ones who've had his workload or that something did not go according to plan here Mm -hmm. and the pirates decided to uh, shut him down prematurely. Yeah. It's a weird situation. I think there's probably a lot of speculation about it. I would be really fascinated to know like what the actual plan was um, and what the decisions were. Cause it's not like Paul Skeens was great. Um, The result, he had a few, maybe one really bad outing struck out the strikeouts and walks were solid um yeah i don't know pretty weird i don't know i think you kind of outlined it pretty well i was more upset or annoyed about the pitch design stuff but i do think that it's just weird to like like having him shut down and having him ramp back up for this brief period of time like i don't even know if him throwing more would be better though like i'm saying it's weird for him to ramp up for just 6.2 innings but is it is it better if it was like a more extensive pro debut? I don't necessarily think so. I, I just don't know what the value is of him even really pitching this year after the workload he he had at LSU. I, I don't know. It, maybe if they expect him to move quickly, maybe there is some value to seeing how he adjusts to a pro schedule, what his body needs to do to recover from that. Like maybe there's some value that you could get from that. But even then, it, it's not like he was throwing more than a few innings in each start either way. So I don't know. It's, it's all very odd. 
Agreed. Very, <laughs> very unusual. All right. Any anything else on Skeens, or should we move on to something more exciting than than depressing Paul Skeens news? Uh, yeah. What else? Uh, what else do you have in your mind? Well, we you had mentioned Junior Caminero earlier, and I was tempted to bring up um, the case for minor league player of the year then, uh, but I think we can either pivot to that or, or some players who you're excited about outside of the top 100 because I feel like in the BA Slack in recent days we've had a lot of conversations about players who who are kind of on the borderline to move in with some graduations Um, there's actually a lot of players that that I'm pretty excited about that are not in the 100 um, or guys who have recently been added but I kind of want to talk about some some good performing minor league players instead of uh, Paul Skeens' weird activation and and shutdown here do you want to talk top 100 or, or fringe top 100 guys or minor league player of the year case because i do think jackson holiday versus junior camonero is pretty exciting I, I think those are the favorites at this point right i think yeah it's you know certainly for hitters and then for pitchers it's tough right like you just don't have pitchers mm. who throw many innings anymore i mean we have andrew painter a year ago had mm. like as good of a season as you could draw up for yeah. a minor league pitching prospect like 103 innings 155 k's 25 walks 156 era reached double a as a teenager his first season Mm -hmm. out of high school and it's like all right we need to create a minor league pitcher of the year award (laughs) because it's just it's just so hard unless there's a year where we just there's just some flukish year now where um there just isn't a dominant minor league hitter and you do have an incredible year from a pitcher it's just going to be hard for a pitcher to win i mean they have won it even in the somewhat recent past but even just still like the the number of innings these guys throw now is just so just it's just down it's just hard for a pitcher i think to compete for that one now absolutely the the number of pitchers who are kind of the prospect types who get over that threshold is, is very short. I am glad we added the minor league pitcher of the year award. I, I think Drew Thorpe and uh, Robbie Snelling are probably two guys that I think of pretty quickly for that one. Both have been pretty impressive. I mean, Drew Thorpe has thrown basically 140 innings, 2.52 ERA, 182 strikeouts. Uh, I think he leads all minor league pitchers with strikeouts with that number. Um, so he's had a good year. Richard Fitz has actually had a pretty sneaky good year. 141 innings, 147 strikeouts. It was fun to see him kind of rebound because he, entering his draft spring, I think people were really excited about the stuff. And then he completely unraveled, had some injury issues, and, and fell down boards a little quicker. But, yeah, glad that we have the pitcher of the year award. It'll be interesting to see who who winds up with that one. Because, again, all the guys who top the list, I guess Snelling maybe is the most equivalent to, to Painter in terms of young pitcher having a great year with prospect status drew thorpe's a little bit older i don't know how people will feel about that or evaluate it but i think he's deserving in terms of just his his performance and i think he's a solid back of the top 100 sort of prospect at this point but i mean the hitter this year might be more difficult to to figure out uh than i guess i was initially expecting i i think holiday is probably the favorite but let's talk about that here if you if you were making the decision today we still have a little bit of the minor league season left to go. Would you lean towards Jackson Holiday or Junior Caminero for minor league player of the year, or or do you have another dark horse that that you think should be considered in this conversation? I I think Junior Caminero is a very deserving 
candidate right now. I mean, we're talking about hitting 330 with close to a 400 on base percentage, and he's going to end up with 30 home runs. I mean, he's at 28 home runs right now for somebody who turned 20 years old during the season. He started the year in high A, moved up to not just double A, but the Southern League where they were using that you know yeah, absolute terror loco crazy yeah carry ball. ball i mean <laughs> so he he deals with that i mean obviously we've, we've talked so much about how jackson churio and his kind of first and second half differences but like it, it's junior camonero was in uh, you know clo- he's he is older than churio like i know like on his like if you pull up his like age it's gonna say 19 but that's because these sites typically put the cutoff for what age at july 1 when it really should be september 1 in my mind because that's the that is now the cutoff for international signings and it generally is the cutoff for school age anyway obviously we still have like older i have no take on the the age season that is put on the site i haven't looked into it that much this is this is my like yeah this is my (laughs) pet peeve where i think we should change (laughs) So we talk about, oh, it's his age 19 season, but like, you know, he, he signed a, his signing year was a year after Jackson Shurio who's in his age 19 season. If, if we set the cutoff at September one, mm. it would match both high school and international signings uh, for, for their respective cutoff dates. Again, we still have, you know, 19 year old high school seniors that, that happens, but mm. um or 17-year-old, you know, like the Arjun Namalas or the Eric Batantes of the world who are just super, super young mm. for their class. But um, if I could change all the other sites that I have no control over, that's that's what I would <laughs> I mean, do. ideally, let's just put their actual age, have it update every day, go to a decimal spot. That'd be great. Then you sure. don't have to ever guess. But yeah, I'd, yeah. I have no, no strong take on that one. So well, it's funny for, that this is your pet peeve. First, first we got to get stats I'll get back on our you, site. I'll oh, get well. on board with you, though. Yeah. I'll, I'll fight this fight with you. I'll, I'll sure I'll jump on board. All right. I was just gonna say first we got to get stats back on our own site <laughs> before we can say anything. But well, fingers uh, crossed those are coming quickly. Yeah. No, I saw something today where uh, it's you know a little little mock up of what's to come. So nice. Um, but but yeah, I mean we're talking like, again like he's hitting three thirty, yeah, almost a four hundred on base, twenty eight home runs, five ninety eight slugging, doing a lot of this in double A. I mean and especially in a difficult league this year, given the context of the baseball that they were using in the first half of the season, um, sh- you know, shortstop slash third base, obviously Jackson holiday has a positional advantage over him as somebody who's played all of his games mm-hmm. at shortstop. Um, and now I guess you could say holidays reached a higher level. I, I am a little hey, surprised. He's been Junior- an absolute bum at AAA, though. He's just one for 10 bust. Yeah. Well, one more hit than Junior Camonero as a triple A. I don't actually don't quite understand why Junior Camonero has not gotten a promotion. How about the not Rays, being aggressive? Yeah, the Rays seem like the antithesis of all of these teams who are really aggressively pushing their players. They seem to just slow. Like they go really slow with all their prospects. It feels like. Yeah. Was talking well, about they're going to get. I think someone was asking if if Junior Camonero had a chance to make the team out of spring training next year for the twenty twenty four season and. I think I'm with JJ where I would expect him to, to just be in Durham for a significant amount of time. Yeah, no, they definitely uh, are more of a slow cook organization. 
But yeah, the, um, Jackson Holiday, you, you ran down Junior Caminero's numbers. Jackson Holiday started the uh, the year at low A. He was promoted to high A, then double A, and he's now had two games at triple A. Overall on the year, he's hit 328, 445, 510, uh, just 10 home runs, 27 doubles, 23 stolen bases. So it is going to be... Just 10 home runs for Jackson Holiday yeah, as a 19-year-old <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to say that as like, oh, that's not good <laughs> enough, but I do think like the two areas that you can compare and contrast if you want to make the case for one or the other is Junior Caminero's power. You'd mentioned it at the very beginning of this podcast is exceptional. And I think Jackson Holiday's plate discipline and swing decisions and, and on-base skills are pretty exceptional. So... If you're more, if you are a person who wants that impact and power, I could see you leaning towards Camonero. If you maybe want that that OBP that Holiday is going to bring you, and and maybe you have the the speed and positional edge as well, you could lean Holiday. But I do think that that both have strong cases, and and I'm not entirely sure which direction I would I would lean if I had to make a decision today and like cast a vote. No, I I think they both have extremely strong and deserving cases this year yeah either way someone will be disappointed to to have not won like i wish i wish every year we had just clear cut but it's more interesting when it's close um yeah man just where where did we have Camonero coming into the year because he's definitely been one of the most like up arrow prospects this season do you know where we had him on our raise list or he wasn't on the top 100 entering the year uh, not not high enough yeah. <laughs> I, I i think you can make again like you can make a case for him just just as a prospect i think you can make a case for him to be either number two i mean you, certainly i think you can make a case for him to be ahead of dylan cruz i mean he's mm. dylan cruz has been in double a and i'm you know, I'm not like down on dylan cruz but like performance wise like <laughs> performance wise junior camonero is kind of blown him away he's younger than him like Cruz is center field maybe more I think Cruz, I don't know I'm more high on Cruz playing actually playing center field now maybe I'm maybe I've gotten towards the extreme of like the Dylan Cruz center field expectation he's pretty good there yeah I think it'll, I think it'll depend a lot on who else is is playing up the middle like what the team actually needs because he's going to be a good defender wherever he plays I'm just pulling up his game log. So he's played eight games. We got James Wood at Double A too, right? So yeah. So in Double A, he's played eight games and in Hassel. center, four yeah. games in right. Uh, overall in pro ball this year, I think it's it's just many more games in center field. Uh, I don't know. I'm not getting three teams split for either way. Either way, I think he's a good center fielder. I think he has a chance to stick there. Um, but. Who do you think is in the conversation for number one prospect in baseball at this point? Because I feel like we've got a decent decent collection of names. I, I would probably include Jackson Holiday, Jackson Chorio, Dylan Cruz, Junior Caminero. I think that's the safe group that I would definitely consider. And I think that you could even go further than that if you wanted to. Like how, how much further off is Ethan Salas or James Wood or even Wyatt Langford? Like, I'm going to consistently bang this drum that Wyatt Langford is is much closer to Dylan Cruz than I think the general perception indicates, and he's been phenomenal in his pro debut. Yeah, he's man, he's been absolutely <laughs> annihilating the ball. But I, I like I said, I, I think at this point, 
Caminero is a better prospect than Dylan Cruz. I think the, I think every like maybe not the chase. Like there's there's still a little bit more chase with Junior Caminero, but I think there's more power than Dylan Cruz, and then the the performance in pro ball is advantage Caminero. Caminero is a year younger. And then defensively, like, all right, if he looks like Dylan Cruz even is a true center fielder, mm. it's, you know, Caminero, again, I don't think he's going to play shortstop, but I do think he'll play third base. Like, I don't yeah, think third it's... third versus center field, I don't think is a huge defensive gap in terms of... No, so I, value. Yeah. I would take Caminero at this point, and then Caminero versus Jackson Churio. Mm. That's one where, like, all right, like, Churio is a true center fielder excellent athlete if you look at the second half numbers this year we were like you know i don't know how much of it is the adjustments that he's made or how much of it is the return to a normal baseball in the second half in the yeah. southern league but i think it's at least i think it's at least debatable there the difference between in his, the two of them the difference in his fastball chase rate and barrel percentage uh, on the pre-tack ball versus the post-tack ball is is pretty eye-opening. So I think it, it it could be a combination of both, but I think it's hard to like the ball clearly had a significant effect on on his performance and just like where he was expecting the ball to be, the ability to put the barrel on the ball. Like I don't think I would err towards overestimating the the impact of that than than underestimating it. But yeah, I I think that's the to me that's the elite tier is those four hitters right now. So it was it was Chorio, Holiday, Caminero, and Cruz. That was and your Dylan point. Cruz. Yeah, yeah. How, yeah how I, far, I, I'm curious how far away Langford is from that group to you. Like, are are you with me that he's a lot closer to Cruz, or or do you have what are your concerns? I guess from not not including him in that. Is it just the fact that it doesn't seem like he's even got a chance to be center field profile? I mean, I am curious next year how often he plays there, but. Yeah, I I mean, he's going to have a tough time just playing center field, I think, in that organization, just given who else Mm -hmm. they have right now. I mean, Evan Carter coming up now. Pretty decent center field. So, yeah, I I mean, what what Langford's done has been extremely impressive, but it is, it does look like left field for him. And it has been at high A, which I expect him to, Mm. you know, I expect him to be good at that level and he is you know he's a top 10 prospect in our top 100 right now so like i don't think he's super far off that group mm-hmm. but i wouldn't put him in in that in that select select tier that's just a tick above above him right now yeah hey he has some background as a catcher maybe next year he goes out at catcher and uh, that changes the profile a little bit that would be <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so that's minor league player of the year talk. I think we have a decent group of players that that are in contention for number one prospect next year. How about any prospects outside of the top one hundred who who you're excited to either get in that that list for in the future as we have some graduations or, or just some players who maybe aren't there yet that that you're intrigued by? Are there any guys that jump out to you or or players who have impressed you that that you're excited about? I have one in mind. Um, that I've been watching a little bit of video on lately, and I think the background is fascinating, but I'm curious who, who your next ups are that, that you like. Yeah, well, we have a few players who are going to graduate soon, right? Andy Rodriguez is at 127 at-bats. You need a hunt or more than 130 at-bats to graduate from being a prospect. So you got Andy Rodriguez, Logan O'Hoppy, 122 as of 
this recording. Sal Frelick is 21 at bats away. So we could have a few more guys graduating pretty soon, but or at least by the end of the season. Um, so looking, you know, for some players who could replace them. It's when, when you're talking about the back of the list, it's always a balance of like upper level players who, who you like, but just to have more holes in their game or might just have some more limitations to their overall upside versus the lower level players who you can dream a little more on, but yeah, but are further away. You don't have the same level of proximity. There's uh, just, just probably some more risk there with them. So like looking at the upper level players, like I, I think Ronnie Mauricio is a guy who's kind of bounced in and out of our top 100 and I could, I could see him coming back into uh, that group again with the Mets. I mean, mm. you made him sound very fascinating. I would say when we we're talking about some guys who, who make sense to come up next, like he's always been fascinating, man. I, I remember watching him when he was a 15 year old, or he might've been 16 year old shortstop in the Dominican Republic. And he was, like six three or six two, 165 pounds just looked like he could you know tie his shoes standing up because his arms are, are so long just such a gangly kid and just talking to different scouts they were like oh yeah like i really like ronnie mauricio because he's this really smooth defender at at shortstop i think he's gonna stay there and and hit enough to to play uh, every day and, and just be like a really good defender at shortstop. And then other guys were like, no, I really like Ronnie Mauricio. Cause I think he's going to fill out and be like a 25 plus home run type guy. So there was always a lot of things to like about him as an amateur, but just didn't know which direction physically like his body was going to go and how that was going to dictate his future, both offensively and, defensively and, and you look at him now i mean he's definitely gone the the power route i mean exit velocity i think he did he hit one in his first game at 117 i know he was up to 116 in the minor leagues this year i mean he has it's plus plus raw power um he he's played you know everywhere now somewhat like he's not going to play shortstop for for the new york mets i don't think i mean francisco Lindor is is there he's not moving him off the position so he's been yeah. you know playing some outfields in, in the minor his, leagues his second base velocity now. As, as 116 and 90th percentile is 109 which are both extremely loud numbers yeah yeah in the minor leagues i think he might have hit a 117 i might be mm. making that up either way uh, I mean, in, in the, the major leagues he, he'll do it i mean <laughs> yeah it's it's some of the best raw power in baseball he's 22 years old he's he's having a or was having a big big season in triple a this year so the the risk with him is just he's an extremely aggressive hitter to his own detriment right there's mm-hmm. a lot of tendency to expand the strike zone, which eats away at his um, base percentage. Um, That's still very much a risk with him, but 
he has performed now through performed well through triple a and he has massive raw power i i think he can handle second base uh i could be wrong about that like i haven't seen him extensively obviously at, at that position but i i think there's certainly enough there to merit a, a spot to go back in the top 100 which i think he's been in a, at various points mm. over over the last uh four or five years yeah he reminds me i don't think this player was as much in that kind of bouncing back and forth into the hundred, but I feel like Edward Julian was a guy who was kind of at the back and on the fringe and, and came in and came out depending on kind of the graduations and, and the adjustments. But it's funny when you do have those players that are kind of jumping in and out randomly almost. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm fascinated with Mauricio. He sounds really exciting. I typically am not a huge fan of, of the players with that sort of chase, but I think you, you've definitely sold me on him getting him back in there just given the the production and the power and, and how you talk about him as a defender, he's fascinating to me. Um, I think maybe in a, a different direction, a player who fits that mold of upper-level hitter who maybe isn't the sexiest profile but does a lot of things well. And, and I don't even know if I'm fully in on, like, he should be back at the top 100, but Justin Henry Malloy was a really interesting hitting prospect a year mm. ago for me when he was in the Brave system, and he had a great year he's had an even better year in 2023 entirely at triple a it's 121 games he hit 292 or he has hit 292 432 509 128 strikeouts to 101 walks the strike zone discipline uh, and the swing decisions in obp have always been a really important facet of his game he does not chase much at all it's around 15 percent overall um and he also has hit a decent amount of home runs as well. 23, I know there are some questions about would he be more of a power guy? Is he going to be more of a hit first guy? It just seems like a pretty well-rounded hitter. And, and it wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't be surprising if he was with a different organization, if he was already up in the majors. So I think he's kind of on the cusp. And like how much value he actually brings to a big league team, I think is going to depend on the power he gets to because... I, I could be wrong. Maybe he's improved as a defender, but it never seemed like he had great defensive actions or ability, even in a corner. Um, so I'm curious, like, if he'll get in that group just based on the performance and uh, proximity to the big leagues. He's he's an interesting name. Yeah, I, I've been similarly intrigued by him because I mean, like you said, uh, 101 walks this year in AAA. Mm. He's an extremely patient hitter it's just a really strong track record of he consistently and, getting on base you you mentioned the the walks he and harry ford lead um minor leaguers it looks like in in total walks this year they both have 101 um friends of the program jet williams and termar johnson top five as well with 99 each that i didn't expect to see their names there that's cool well that's that's the advantage you have when you're when you're five foot uh that's why you like short hitters. five foot seven finally realize it you got a, a little strike zone yeah i guess harry yeah harry ford jet williams jamar johnson and henry malloy is not the the biggest he's six one so bigger than he's, those guys he but... powers over over those guys yeah, come on does. <laughs> six one though not uh, not massive for for a big league hitter I'd say yeah i mean on, on the on the power with henry malloy justin henry malloy you're right it's not like gigantic raw power with him but he's another guy kind of like Lawler where he does have a a knack for hitting the ball 
in the air. Um, yep. he, he, there's some loft to his swing. So between that, the selectivity that he has, like he's a very choosy hitter. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not, he's not chasing outside the strike zone and he's really not offering much. He's just not swinging much period. Yeah, <laughs> so he's he, he, his swing rate is 36% around. 36%. So, so when he's swinging, it's usually at a pitch that he's going to be able to do damage mm-hmm. with, or to be able to at least get his a swing off against. So, I mean, he has hit, what is it? I think it's 23 home runs this year. Uh, yeah, so, that sounds right, 23. Yep. Yeah, so so you're seeing power from him. You're seeing numbers that are kind of up, above and beyond what you might expect just from some of the EV numbers. But um, I don't think that's entirely a mirage. I think there's a chance he can carry hmm. that over. And when you're talking about these guys who are so close to the big leagues, um, you know, if – if he just does it one level higher, <laughs> obviously it's, it's a big jump to make, but it's not yeah. like a, a lower level hitter where it's like, Oh, like if you're a little bit light on him, then okay. Like he yeah. still has a ways to go. It's all right. Like he's basically, he's just knocking on the door. Yeah. And right it just now. seems like a pretty well-rounded profile. Not a lot of traits that he shows that, that give you cause for alarm or make well, well-rounded offensively well-rounded does, hitter hitter yes, yes. That's, how, that's what i should because i think not, that's that's not the a concern well-rounded overall profile yeah yeah i think it's probably trending toward left field mm-hmm. overall with Absolutely. him which is which is the you know the risk factor there is how much he's going to have to that that bat is going to have to carry him i think in left field yeah but i think solid trade for the tigers to acquire a bat like this they just need more productive hitters on the team in general shipped out a good reliever. I think it's got a chance to be a, a win-win trade for both the Braves and the Tigers. There's Joe Jimenez for Justin Henry Malloy, and I think Jake Higginbotham. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's a move you want to make. There's no point in having a good reliever on a team that's not competitive. So could turn into a solid everyday player, even if there's not much more upside than that, um, which maybe there is. But I think safe outlook for him would be solid regular in a corner. Um, not bad. Any other names you want to go through? I've got a couple more, but I'll, I'll let you go since I chose Henry. Well, if we if we stick with the upper level guys, mm-hmm. somebody who probably has the plate discipline of Ronnie Mauricio, certainly not the Uh-oh. power, but does have the performance. I, I mean, Sedan Raffaella oh, no. with the Red Sox. Yeah, I knew you were going to bring this one up. See, I don't even – man, he's not the kind of player who I, I – typically bite on but he's not, and i've he's talked like before opposite, i would say I, I, and because of the way you've talked about players like this and how i've been burned in the past on players like this i've i've been out so I, i'm willing to come back around but you're gonna have to sell me on it ben why, why should we come back around on rafaela because i i feel like earlier this year we were talking about all the reasons we, we weren't too excited about him well yeah i said he shouldn't be in our top 100 <laughs> when he was and now I, I just don't know like i can't sell you on you him just i be can be contrarian that's what you well want. i can i can build like a, a steel man case for him which Let's is this is he's 22 years old right he's plays up the middle premium position positions right center field shortstop um and just look at what he's done this year in AAA. I mean, 312, 370, 618 
in 219 plate appearances there. I mean, 14 home runs in his 48 games. It's it's a lot. There's a lot to like between and, and good defense too. So good defense at a premium position with good performance up through AAA, uh, you know, a little bit of time obviously now in the big leagues. The risk is that he swings at everything. <laughs> I mean, <he> just <laughs> yeah. You were talking about Mauricio's chase rate. His was thirty five percent. Rafael's is forty percent, and that's like solidly into red flag territory for me. The oh, absolutely. Rate, the, the contact questions. I mean, he doesn't hit the ball as hard as Mauricio. No. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm probably still out. Even though the I would just be scared that the the production is. And even if he has made some adjustments, it's like a high BABIP that he's posting. I don't know. I'm I'm just still scared. I'd say if I'm gonna be, I am too. <laughs> I would rather err on the on the pessimistic side of this one. Just just after being, maybe it's my destiny to just always get these sorts of profiles wrong, though. Maybe that's just the case. Just don't don't trust me on these these sorts of profiles. Well, there's like a there's there's several safety net type things there with him. But again, with that, what are those? Sick, the the defense at the premium is, position being. But how? But how much of a safety net is that? Because Christian Pache was a pretty dang good defender, and I don't know that that provided him much of a safety net at all. I mean, well, I mean, it doesn't guarantee that you can be an everyday regular, but if if you can hit to a certain level, it provides a certain level of of value for yeah. you you to potentially play every day, even if you, I mean, you can't obviously hit like Christian Pache. As, <laughs> as, as that, that's not ops this year. Ops plus, I should say. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, I'm just being a troll here, Ben, but I, yeah, I can't, I, I yeah. just can't bite yet. I'd be fine if, if everyone on the team wanted to put him on the top 100 because of those improvements. Like, I wouldn't fight everyone on it, but I would just remain the low man and see what happened. I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared of it. All right. I'm not saying he has to be in, but I think he's at least mm. in in the conversation based okay. on what he's been doing All right. in well, AAA this year. Well, if you want a non-risky profile, how about a low-level minor league first base out of high school prospect. That's what I've got for you. You know who I'm talking about? You are talking about... Also... You said, you said first base? First base profile, high school product, low-level minors. Also, to add towards the uh, the conviction factor, very little showcase track record as a high schooler. Oh, all right. At first, I thought, pick. at first, I thought you were talking... Bryce Eldridge, and then I oh, was going to correct you and say he, this is this is a two way player, sir. <laughs> I will I will deserving. double down and say that I'm driving the Bryce Eldridge as a hitter bandwagon. Um, so we can include him too, but I, I do have another one in mind, and I think his his background is maybe as fascinating as as the two way wonderkind of of Bryce Eldridge. But about you, Mr. Xavier Isaac with yes. with your Tampa Bay Rays? I am. That That is exactly who I'm talking about. Xavier Isaac, um, in his age 19 season, he still won't turn 20 until December, so I think he makes the cutoff for you for that. He He's only played at low A and high A. Bulk of that time coming 
with low A Charleston. Um, but the performance has been good. He's hit 283, 391, 509. He's got 17 home runs, 20 doubles, and he absolutely destroys the baseball. He has massive raw power. Um, the top end exit velocity numbers are reasonably close to your guy, Ronnie Mauricio, as a 19 year old, three years younger. Um, just watching him hit home runs is really impressive. It's, it's just such a huge physical player with just tons of strength, tons of bat speed, tons of power. He, he's one of these guys like Eldridge who can miss hit a ball and hit it out of the park. Uh, and I think it's it's been fun to see him succeed because when the Rays picked him, I'm trying to scroll down to see where he was picked, uh, number 29 overall in 2022, I think he was a pretty surprising pick at the time. Uh, there are a lot of people who thought it was too aggressive, and I think the fact that he didn't have much showcase track record at all, there were a lot of hit tool questions because of that. Um, but he just had massive raw power. I think the way that scouts talked about Xavier Isaac's raw power is maybe the loudest I've heard scouts talking about a high school player's raw power in, in my time doing this. So he's always super fascinating because of that. And I think like high school first base only profile with a lack of track record of hitting, it's just super, that's a super sketchy profile. I was talking about him being super safe earlier, like tongue in cheek, but so far he's looked good. And I think he would be towards the top of my list of intriguing first base uh, profiles in the minors. I'm not sure if the bar to clear offensively is, is high enough that we wouldn't want to push him on a top 100 yet, or if you just want the performance to be a little more impressive. But I've been pretty impressed with him so far. I think the walk rate and the strikeout rate has been way better than I expected, just given his background. And I just think it's a fun pick that so far looks like it's paying off for the Rays. Yeah, no, he, he hits the crap out of the ball, man. Like it's, mm. like you said, huge, huge raw power. And it's not a, he doesn't do it by selling out yeah. to generate that power and leaving himself exposed with a whole bunch of holes in his swing either, right? Like there's, there's an approach. He's not swinging at everything mm -hmm. up there. He makes pretty consistent contact yeah. And then there's big power. I mean, definitely sufficient power for a first baseman. Mm -hmm. um, that's, you know, it's not Nolan Shanuel, but, um, <laughs> but it's, yeah. I mean, talking plus plus raw power with contact. I mean, I think you can honestly throw an 80 on his raw power. I would. Uh, I, I think he could get there. I think he his could get raw there. power. You think it's 80 raw right now? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I would put it there. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's monstrous raw power. And, and again, well, maybe, maybe this because I talk to more amateur scouts and amateur scouts notably are a little more optimistic on their grading scale, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's going to be. Well, either way, I, th I think, yeah, I think he has a chance to be a 30 plus home run hitter. So I, I do agree, um, that he belongs uh, or, or at least merits consideration hmm. in our top 100 I, I think he belongs in there yeah i mean the risk is it's a first baseman who uh, yeah i mean off to a good start obviously in high in a very very small sample but otherwise you know hasn't mm -hmm. done it above low a 
I get the risk. You know, maybe he ends hey, up. He's got four home runs in high A, Ben. Don't, I know. don't sleep on him too much. He's done it a little above high A. Only nine games. Four home runs in nine games. Four doubles in nine games. He's he's going off in high A. Oh, it's a 900 slug. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty, pretty good. I mean, look, like there, there's risk that maybe he ends up being, you know, Jonathan Singleton, mm. right? Like there's that, that's kind of the risk of your, yeah. And, uh, and it's very first base. much like first base DH only. Like if he wound up being more of a DH than a first baseman, I don't think that would be shocking either. Yeah. But so, I, I do think he, I think he's very much top 100 worthy. Mm. Yeah. Typically Here, I, I hate the first base prospect, um, like supply that we have in the minor leagues, but between Isaac and, and first base only, uh, Bryce Eldridge, I'm really excited about the group actually now. Well, here's one. All right. Xavier, Isaac, and then, yeah, two other guys who I think merit top 100 consideration or conversation right now. I would put Eldridge mm. into that group. Okay. I'm glad and then I would I, put, I was worrying I was out on a limb on him being too high. No, I, I think what he's doing right now in pro ball offensively, and then obviously because he is a true two-way player, um, merits that. But but then the other guy I was going to say was Lazaro Montes. And like, you know, Eldridge and Montes are, you know, playing outfield. I actually think Eldridge is athletic enough to play outfield if, if he wants, but he's actually, I, I like him defensively at, first base and he's six foot seven and, and i don't think he's unless he's gotten faster i would worry about the range in the outfield but yeah i, I agree with you i like him at first yeah i i think there's a chance to actually be like a really good defender just because of how athletic he is yes um but that the other guy yeah lazaro montes who's playing outfield very much looks like a first baseman uh but also is hitting the ball like <laughs> a first baseman too um mm-hmm. he is it's all right like he's younger than Xavier Isaac. He hasn't doesn't have the same tr- track record of performance the way that Isaac has done it all year in low A. But he's 18 years old. He hits the ball. I mean, it's it's plus, if not, you know, probably double plus. I, I would say double plus raw power with Lazaro Montes. Um, he looks like he has <laughs> double plus raw power just the way that he's built. Um, I don't think the like the swing and miss numbers aren't aren't really different. I mean, maybe in when, when like there, there is, I think there is going to be some more holes with Montez's swing compared to Isaac's. So I do think there is some more mm. swing and miss risk with Montez, and we certainly saw that last year with him yeah. in the Dominican Summer League. So I, I think. Their, their overall Isaac. chase and overall miss is fairly similar right now, but the in, there's a bit of a difference in end zone miss. So you might, you might be on something with that. So so I think that, yeah, that's true. But he's performed at an extremely high level, you know, this year just between rookie ball and low A. Mm. I, this, and this was, you know, it's not some out-of-nowhere guy. This was a big, big international signing, like one of the best international signings in – you know, in January 2022, uh, I, I wouldn't have necessarily expected coming into the year that we'd be talking about him as a potential top 100 guy, just given all the strikeouts that he had last year. But he's done a, a great job of cutting down on that. So I, I don't know how you'd like stack those three guys up. Like if, if Isaac is clearly 
ahead for you, but I, mm-hmm. I think all three of those like first base ish type guys. Yeah, are... you had to throw the ish in there, didn't you? And I was going to ask because Montes has played some outfield. You think wait, the way you're talking about him, it sounds like he's a definite first base for you in the future. I mean, I think look like they're going to try to keep him mm-hmm. in the outfield. Like he's he hasn't played first base yet, but like this is a. I mean, he's six three. He's listed at two ten. Like, he he's not getting any smaller. He might already be bigger than two ten. I kill like, keep him in the outfield. Maybe he can, maybe he can play there. Um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if he. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm not saying he's Jordan Alvarez, but like you know, he's. Mm. I mean, physically, he's not he's not quite as tall as as Jordan, but um, he's he's going to be a big big dude like that. Yeah, so I definitely you definitely have an information asymmetry against me with Montes. I would I would have to look into him more to feel confident. I think of the domestic players, I would go Eldridge over Isaac just because of Eldridge's uh, athleticism, just the athletic foundation that he has. Um, I'd probably lean towards him, although I'm, I really like both of them at this point, and it's it's very rare for me to be excited about the first base demographic in the minor leagues. And, and now you've given me a third reason to be excited about it. So how, how would you line them up? I feel like you have a lot more familiarity with, with Montes. And so maybe you can answer that one better. Yeah. I, I might just lean toward just the production that we've seen already mm. from Xavier Isaac, but man, Bryce Eldridge is a fascinating yeah. The guy right now, even if you take away the fact that he is a really good pitching prospect, yeah. go ahead, go as we all know. To, go ahead and get used to taking that away, Ben. <laughs> but he, I mean, we talk about hitting the ball hard or just big raw power. Like, I, oh man, like Eldridge is right up there, I think, with Xavier Isaac, just as far as mm-hmm. raw power. He's I a, talked about guys who can miss hit the ball out of the park there was a, a video you can find it on twitter pretty quickly if you just search bryce eldridge but he was late on a pitch he was under a pitch and still had just the strength to send it out to the opposite field with wood i mean he did that i, I think when he did that with team usa that's kind of when my eyes got open to him being very much a hitting prospect instead of a pitching prospect but you're not lying he's massive he's strong there's bat speed it's great leverage um, more I room think, to get stronger too I think yeah, more projection to the frame I think Isaac has a tick more raw power right now um, but it wouldn't be shocking to me if they wound up being similar similar hitters uh, I think both of them both of them have shown I think I knew Eldridge had a decent approach I wasn't as I didn't have as much confidence in what Isaac's approach was but yeah I, I think they both can be good good hitters with tons of power, even if they have a little bit of miss, I think they are selective enough to, to deal with a little bit of miss. And they certainly have enough power to deal with a little bit of miss. Yeah. This is a, uh, this is unusual for us getting jacked up about uh, first base. Yeah. What is potential this? first base, lower level first base <laughs> types? Okay. Well, we'll all switch it up then. I'll, I'll go, I'll add a middle infielder to this conversation who I know you love. I think maybe has been one of the most impressive um, recent draftees in pro ball this year. That's Colt Emerson. 
you you've been a massive fan of him for a long time. Him him and Kevin McGonigal in the pure hit Ben Badler club. He's hitting 365, 495, 541, two homers, seven doubles, seven stolen bases. Um, again, really small sample, just eight games in rookie ball, 12 games in low A. But this guy does everything really well. I think there's still some projection to the frame. He, he doesn't have the power of these first basemen that we've been talking about, but, but his defensive profile is significantly better than just first baseman, obviously. I'm, I think I'm more towards the optimistic um, end of outcomes for him maybe sticking at shortstop. There are some scouts who think maybe he'll be better at second or third, but just such a great approach, great field to maneuver the barrel around the zone, always seems on time, really simple, repeatable swing, and he's off to a great start. He's also extremely young. Uh, he was still 17 on draft day. He turned 18 on July 20th. So just a lot of things to like for a profile that's much more up our alley uh, as a high school shortstop with, with some tools and some some really advanced baseball skills. Yeah, it's I mean, you say small sample, but and I, and I get what you're saying. It's, you know, 94 plate appearances. Mm. So it's about what he had in the high school season, too, <laughs> right? Like people talk about oh, like this guy got drafted higher or this is what you said like before the draft. Hmm. How can so much change? But like, I don't know, like this is a lot to a lot of new information based on wood bats hmm. facing pro competition. I think there's, there, there's a lot that can be gleaned. That's, that's actionable. why I'm excited about Isaac. Cause he even less so than Colt Emerson. Like I, there was just much, much uh, less confidence in who he was as a hitter, but, but Colt Emerson, he does have that track record of, of consistently being one of the best pure hitters in his high school class. Right. So, like, yeah, like seeing him and like Kevin McGonnell, you said, go out and hit right away or, or like mm-hmm. Walker Jenkins. Like that's not that's not surprising. That that doesn't necessarily change anything. It, I mean, it does enhance your confidence in that evaluation. But with Emerson, I, I actually am quite impressed with the power yeah. that he has shown this year, which – when he was, you know, an, an underclassman, and then his his summer going into his draft year, he's really like a hit over power guy. I mean, he's six one. He, like you said, he's young for the class. There's there's reason to project more power down the road with him at that time. Um, but so far, like he's come out, he's hitting the ball hard, like he's driving the ball well with extra base damage in addition to all of those uh, hitter-ish traits. You know, Mm -hmm. Cole Young, (laughs) left-handed hitting shortstop, the Mariners drafted the year before. Like I would say Young is – I I liked Young more, even more at the time than than Emerson. But what Emerson has done, uh, both as a a hitter – like a, a hit first guy, but also now showing some power too that I, I didn't necessarily know was in there to me has, has elevated his stock from where I thought it was coming into the draft. Yeah. His average exit velocity is, is right at 90. It's better than a couple of the players we've talked about before in our conversations here who are much more advanced in terms of age, in terms of physicality, I think if if he is showing that sort of power, if he's able to start elevating the ball more in the future, maybe that translates to more to more home runs than we expected. Talk about some guys like Matt McLean who have already exceeded our expectations for power. Um, 
I think we did have average grades on Colt Emerson's power, like future grades, but yeah, it'll be exciting. He's hitting the ball on the ground quite a bit right now, so I'm curious just, and I don't necessarily mind that at all at this stage. I don't think you can get too nitpicky, but it is exciting to think about him just getting to more power quicker than we expected and seeing how that changes his profile. Because I think if you if you wanted to critique Colt Emerson's profile, you could say that the, the supplemental tools were more solid instead of exciting or explosive. And if he is just stronger and, and more powerful than we expected, um, well, that elevates the upside potential with him quite a bit. And I, I like all of the foundation that he has in terms of baseball skill, baseball IQ, defensive actions, um, just approach good, at the plate. Good athlete too. I think I think mm-hmm. that got pretzel a little overlooked with him sometimes. Yeah, no. So a lot to like with him. I'm. I wonder how uh, aggressive we'll be able to get with him on the top 100. I, I don't think you have to sell either you or me on him at this point. And the Mariners, man, they they keep hitting on these guys. Yeah, I was like with him and Montez. I'm not sure. I'm not sure which Mariner I would take. <laughs> take next i think i might lean i probably would lean toward emerson with the positional advantage that he has over over him right now that's the last one that i had are there any other names that we haven't touched on that are outside top 100 or fringe top 100 who you think have cases to to join on yeah i'll I'll give you a a ben badler special of uh shorter are we talking about now? yeah shorter bad body uh catcher Moises Ballesteros with the Cubs. Let's hear it. I don't even, I don't know if he should be in the top 100 right now, but I think he needs to at least be in the discussion and on the periphery Mm -hmm. of it because man, he like when he signed, I I, I saw him and I was like, Oh boy, like this guy, he's built different as, as they say. Is it Alejandro Kirkish? Kinda, yeah. Like he's he's listed right, so, at five seven two fifteen. Is that accurate? That's five. <laughs> yeah, that is a uh, it's accurate. Maybe maybe generous. Well, not generous on the height. That's I'm surprised they list a guy at five seven. Usually they <laughs> lie and say five nine or five. Well, maybe five, that 10, means but, he's actually five five. Uh, what he is is a really good hitter, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's played at two levels this year 19 years old he signed signed in what was it 2021 made his you know his played a couple of years and then he's he hit well last year he's been even better this year between high and low it's 285 377 459 61 walks 74 strikeouts mm. 14 home runs this year um just the combination of bat control and power is extremely impressive. I get it yeah. looks funny. Like not, it doesn't have a bad, so it's a good swing. It looks like Kyle described him as having a chunky midsection, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean like Alejandro Kirk, like, like Pablo Sandoval was another guy I really liked. Like, I don't mm. know if he's at that level of of a prospect right now and and look like there certainly are defensive questions with him um well he doesn't have the one tool you need your catchers to have ben he's not a runner it doesn't sound like 
Well, we need, we need those runners <laughs> behind the plate. Those Harry Ford style catchers. <laughs> yeah, no, Harry Ford is a. I, I think it's fair to say a superior athlete, but uh, <laughs> this dude. No, but great. he sounds like an exciting hitter, and if you can. Is there a chance he sticks at catcher even if he's not a great catcher? Or is that the big question with his profile? Like, is, is he a risk to move off? We have seen some bad body catchers stay there. Yeah, I, I think he's he is a risk to move off. But, mm-hmm. yeah, we also have seen guys who had question marks uh, on their ability to catch, catch. Like Alejandro Kirk, for example, would be one, right? Like, mm-hmm. and... he's he's catching now and is a you know a solid regular catcher for uh for the blue jays and and was an all-star the previous years obviously like the bat hasn't even quite been as good as uh i expected it to be this year uh, or as it was the previous season which is previous time in the big leagues but um but i i do think there's a chance he can stick it catcher but but sure there's there's certainly defensive risks which is what i think really is holding him back right now but just the more he plays the more conviction i think you have to have in his hitting ability it's very good play coverage there's very little swing and miss to his game and then he he's consistently putting the sweet spot on the ball hitting the ball hard Uh, there's power there it's showing up even more in games now this season so yeah it's not like your conventional looking prospect but this is a a player i I don't think people should uh overlook just because of the uh, the the physical (laughs) appearance because there's there's a lot of really good skills offensively there yeah no he sounds really exciting um so that's a good Kind of a good variety of, of players that we've talked about for this different defensive yeah. profiles different levels of the minors different prospect pedigree backgrounds um yeah i i still you know i feel like a lot of this year i've talked down on this group of prospects at the minor leagues but there are some players who who are kind of up and coming that i'm excited about so i'm, I'm very curious to see like what my individual top 150 list is going to look like as we get into prospect handbook season in a few months um obviously that's not until next january when that stuff will start coming out but there are a lot of young players that that are just exciting yeah i would add a like a more conventional catching prospect would be uh yvonne herrera with the cardinals i mean 23 Mm -hmm. years old having a good year in triple a like walks about equal to strikeouts hits the ball hard like he's He's right there, basically, on the cusp. He does have some big league time. I think he could, you know, I think he's a player who could make a real contribution for them. Uh, yeah, the on-base next year is impressive. Yeah. All right. Any other ones? Uh, yeah. I mean, like I said, there's there's a lot of guys I think who merit consideration in the back of this list and. And I'm looking, I mean, the other thing is like, look, like obviously we'll have some graduates, right? So we'll replace guys, but uh, there's not too many guys who are on the back of the list or on the top 100 right now who I would kick out. I mean, there there, there are certain ones, but I think it's a pretty strong overall uh, group in the minors right now. Yeah. 
I've certainly been uh, more excited about it in the last few months than the first few months of the season, so it's been cool to see. Um, well, let's get into, we have a listener email, uh, which is a follow-up to our conversation from last week uh, when we were talking about the A's uh, versus LSU in a hypothetical 100 games. So Dave emailed us uh, and said, if the A's played the Braves under the same circumstances that you guys talked about with LSU and Oakland, how many games would the A's win? More or less or roughly the same amount that LSU would win against the A's. Love the pod, and thanks for the great work. Uh, well, thank you for the kind words, and I appreciated this follow-up question. I think it's a fun conversation to have. Do you have any initial gut reaction about what, what your answer would be, more or less or roughly the same? And I think we were both in the 10 to 20 range for LSU. Am I recalling that accurately? That's definitely where I was, but I don't want to misspeak for you, Ben. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's... That's fair. Okay, so what is what would your gut reaction be? Mine would probably be more. The question being the question being how many games would the A's win in a one hundred game series against the Braves if we're giving both teams full health? Oh yeah, yeah, they would. They, the A's would win more. Games. Okay, what I mean, what range of games would you expect them to? Because I I can break down some numbers here that might be helpful but you seem pretty confident already in your answer well i just think the spread and talent between the braves and the a's is smaller than there is between the a's and lsu yeah right especially so especially on like once you get from players like three to the rest of the roster which is probably more important yeah and and, and also paul Skeens doesn't throw more than yeah paul skeens well i guess ls ls you would be able to use him again they wouldn't (laughs) wouldn't be the pirates using him (laughs) like that but 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 let me run down some numbers and then i'll let you go but so this year the a's well actually i think the answer to this is the a's would actually win this series because they took the season series against the braves this year two to one so that's your answer (laughs) right yeah they did they won two to one this this year uh, but the A's against greater than 500 teams this year, they're 22 and 71. That's good for a 23.6% winning percentage. Um, they, like their actual winning percentage this year is 30.7% compared to the Braves' winning percentage of 65%. The best winning percentage by a modern club that I found was the 2001 Mariners. They won 71% of their games, win 116 and 46. So if that gives you some idea of like the the upper and lower bounds of what might be possible, I, I think it's crazy that the Mariners won seventy one percent of their games when they're not consistently playing against teams as bad as the twenty twenty three Oakland A's. Um, so so I guess what's your range of expected outcomes for this? Because you seem pretty confident that it would be more than more than our LSU target, which I'm in agreement. I, I think it would be somewhere in the twenty to thirty percent range. I think that the A's would win. 20 to 30 and I, I would air towards like 2025 i think just based on what they've done this year both these teams uh, that's probably a a math problem right where the braves what's their you said their winning percentage they win 65 percent of their games the a's win 31 percent of their games overall yep. it's not even necessarily their true talent level mm-hmm. like if you think one of them is overachieved or underachieved maybe their true talent level is there well i looked at their pythagorean win loss expected which just does their like runs and even if you think that's not accurate like they're both their records are pretty close to their actual like their expected wins based on the runs they've scored and allowed but if you think 
they've been just unlucky or lucky in, in that production, that would be different. Yeah, so you could probably just do the math on what the expected value would be. I, I can't do it right right now on, on the podcast. But yeah, I would say uh, ballparking it, what the... I would say probably in that 70 to 75% range that the Braves should win. So like 25 to to 30 for the, probably lower, eh, probably, probably, well, probably a little more toward the lower yeah, end of that t- range. Yeah, so you're talking yourself down. I mean, the fact that, for me, the fact that the A's already have only won 23% of their games against just 500 teams, 500 or better teams overall, like the Braves are pretty significantly better than just your standard run-of-the-mill winning team. So I think when you combine the two, just best team in the game versus worst team in the game, I, I would go more towards maybe even the 20%. Like we're, we're guaranteeing both teams' health. I think that helps the Braves more than it more than it helps the A's close the gap, just given some of the arms that, that you would gain for Atlanta. Um, yeah, I think, I think it would be maybe optimistic for the A's to win 25 games. But maybe I'm maybe I'm being too pessimistic here. I would I would go twenty twenty five range. Yeah, I'll go I'll go twenty three to to thirty. Wow, that that's like equivalent of half grades for you, Ben. Really getting granular there. Well, I'm just trying to trying to show there's a little bit of difference <laughs> in our, <laughs> what, we're, what we're predicting. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for that follow-up, Dave. I, I appreciate that question. I think it's a good one. Probably some some smarter math people than us could give you a more precise answer with some confidence, just given the data we have for um, for these major league teams. I think it's probably an easier thought exercise to run than uh, the LSU question, just because I mean you actually see these teams playing um, similar competition every day. But yeah, curious what you guys think. If you have any strong takes on this one, if we're if we're way off or if we're way low, but. I did get some good feedback from some people in the industry about what we thought on LSU A's last week, Ben. So I don't think we're entirely crazy. The feedback was what? The feedback was some people agreed with what we thought on LSU. Their their uh, hypothetical win total for the A's. So you talked to some smart that. people then. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think that's all for us this week, Ben. Unless there's something I'm missing that you want to chat about or, or sign off with, but. It's our kind of chance to uh, to close out if you need to plug anything. No, I, I got to go watch some more Jordan Waller at bats. Yeah. Actually, did he get – in the time we recorded this podcast, let's see if he let's see if he had his first big league hit. Do you know by chance? He's probably, he probably did something like absolutely crazy, and people are going to listen to this podcast and be like, dude, did you guys – What are you guys talking you about? Pay, you pay attention? <laughs> no, we're talking about who would win between – the Braves and the A's over a hundred games. He did get his first big league hit. He's one for four. I don't know what the hit was, but he's, he's not, he's not hitless now. So good job. Hopefully, hopefully nobody threw the ball in the stands. (laughs) Oh my God. I can't believe that happened. Good on you, Pete Alonso. Good on you. Did they ever get that ball back? Do you know? Yeah. I think they got it back. Yeah. Or they just bribed the fan say, we're going to give you all this stuff. You give us the ball back. Or was I it just it's called nice bribing a fan. I think you're. I mean, if they're not going to give it back, you got to bribe them. Exchanging, <laughs> exchanging, exchanging value. Exchange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. 
Well, that's it for us today. Uh, this is episode 59. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks, as always, to the BA subscribers and supporters who allow us to do this. Um, and thank you to you who just made it through this podcast and hung out with us for a while. It's fun for us to do, and hopefully you enjoyed it as well. For Ben, I'm Carlos. Until next time, everybody. See ya.